Hey guys, Dustin Wynn. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. You're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. back to bat force radio first episode of 2024 thank you for joining us for another year we're gonna have a lot of cool shit this year again uh starting today i always like to start every new year with an episode featuring someone that i really wanted to have on and is doing something really cool and today we have first guest of the year is an illustrator and author of books like west of sundown infidel green hornet the shadow nightmare country and notably today, the previous volume of John Constantine Hellblazer from 2019-2020 with Cy Spurrier. This week, he and Cy returned to the character with John Constantine Hellblazer, Dead in America, number one. Welcome to the show, Mr. Aaron Campbell. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time, launch uh, launch week of uh, of a new title. That's, I don't know, is it still anxiety uh, time for you at all do you, do you get nervous or uh you old hat enough at it now yeah i mean because i've been working on the book for well probably six months now so i've been hotly anticipating the day that it finally releases but i just wrapped up um issue four um and that was a really crazy deadline for me so i'm not even thinking right now about anything i'm just decompressing from finally wrapping up that issue um think tuesday when tuesday hits or wednesday whenever people start picking the issue up and we start seeing reviews come out that's when i'm gonna be glued to my phone like checking uh comic book roundup to see what people are saying <laughs> well i i think uh, i think you're gonna have pretty good results i got to read this one uh early december and yeah it's a it's a great result that's why i wanted to make sure that i got to uh, to talk to you when the time came uh first of all before we get too far into it how are things going on your end oh they're going pretty good like i said i just wrapped up uh issue four which was uh i don't know what it was about that particular issue but um always around the holidays things get really backed up and then I start to scramble to try to get uh, caught up. And so I end up just the, the, the holidays just go by in a flash because I'm on crazy deadline every year. And it's like sun up to sundown. All I'm doing is sitting and drawing and like the only days I actually get to like let go are Christmas day and new year's day. Like those are the two days where I'm like, I don't care if I'm late. I'm not working these days. So, but like I said, I just wrapped that up, I think a little bit over a week ago, and I'm working on what's next um, coming up, which are several exciting things with mm-hmm. the this series. So I'm working on one of those, wrapping that up this, broken up, wrapping something up this weekend. 
which I don't really know. I mean, I, I kind of intimated it uh, on Blue Sky, but you know, that's kind of a niche social media place where you know news doesn't really travel. So um, I'm not really sure if I can broadly say what it is I'm doing concerning issue five of Hellblazer, but it's going to be pretty exciting. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I can definitely see uh, any issue that you're working on being uh, possibly a crunch as far as the deadline goes. You're, you don't do a, a simplistic uh, kind of style. You, know, you don't kind of do characters in the foreground, but kind of a blank background. Everything is pretty well. I've got some uh, images right here from issue one. So this picture here, this, this is a, a full page from issue one that by the time people are hearing this, the, the book is on shelf, so we, we won't worry too much about it. But uh, from December, when I got to when I got the PDF, this has been uh, my phone background. Oh, nice. Because, yeah, the all, all the pages in this in this book just look so good. But, yeah, like that's that's obviously not uh, something you're just banging out. You're not just, you know, smashing pages like this out and and moving on to the next one. That's yeah, cause I, I work with. I shoot lots of photo reference and I work with models. You know, I have a dedicated model for John. I have a dedicated model for Daniel or dream, Nat, Noah, everybody. Basically I throw myself in, I pepper myself in there whenever I feel like it, like you'll, you'll see me as the uh, conquistador, uh, the, the possessed kitschy conquistador statue in issue one. Okay. And, uh, yeah, sitting in the uh, in the museum or whatever it was there. Yeah, and I can't remember who else I used myself. Oh, I think in issue three, I uh, I portray a uh, you know one of these uh, kind of patriot border guard guys in uh, Texas. Um, I always try to change it up just enough so that I don't look identical across pages. But like the first time I usually throw myself into a book, I just let it be me. And then I yeah. kind of go off in sort of like the Mitch Gerads or, you know, like Sean Phillips kind of kind of vein where I change it up just a little bit. You can probably catch a catch uh, glimmers of myself in it, just like, you know, you can usually catch glimmers of, you know, Sean Phillips and in, in his his main characters. Um because I know he uses himself for reference a lot. Um, and same thing with, with Mitch, you know, uh, Mr. Miracle. I mean, that was Mitch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Now, uh, th- this is way off topic. I, this just popped into my, my head. I wasn't even planning to bring this up. But since we've got you, and we're talking about Constantine, a few years back, I read this article. Uh, I wonder how quickly I could find it forget it uh but anyway the the gist of the article was it was speaking to like alan moore and then like a bunch of other people who had worked on constantine at some point over the years and how there was this common thread among them that they all would swear to some degree or another that at some point out in the real world they have encountered john constantine somewhere yeah it only when i read that it, it, it only happens to writers. Um, no artist has ever seen John. Um, Alan Moore was the first one to say that he swears that he saw him in a bar in London. Um, there's only been a couple more. I think Jamie Delano has seen him. Um, and uh, I think Garth 
I hang out with Garth at New York. I don't know if I've ever asked him. Garth Garth is a pretty no nonsense guy. If there's anybody, maybe it was Peter Milligan. It's not actually that many who have seen him. Um, it's a handful. It's definitely less than six, is from what I understand. Well, funny thing that after I read the article, I reached out to a couple people. Uh, I shot Lieber Mayo a message and cited this article and asked him. And yeah. I don't know if he's written John at some point. Maybe maybe he's done some writing and something that he's illustrated too. But he said that he had seen him at some point, and also uh, Sean Murphy had said that yeah, he had seen him once. Oh, okay. Well, then that under that 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 flips that because Sai uh, had told me that it was only ever it was only authors who'd ever seen him. Well, um, maybe uh, that Sean and uh, Lee are both also. Uh, authors maybe they've you know done some writing and they are qualified for the club i don't know but well, you, don't know you do as well any hellblazer yeah um i mean i'll i'll cross fingers because um well th- this will be a little bit of a spoiler and it, since i've already shown this on uh blue sky it's probably not a big deal but but i am writing uh some hellblazer for issue five oh. There so that puts me into the author category. So nice. maybe I'll see him next time I'm in London <laughs> <laughs> and ask him to uh, ask him to model for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know the story from Alan Moore was that he saw him in a bar. He was in the back. He had his trench coat on. This was back in the day when you could smoke inside and he was back there by himself, lighting up a cigarette and just smoking. And then he got up and he left and Alan Moore is 100% convinced that it was John. <laughs> yeah, if if I had planned to bring this up, I would have gone back through some messages to find it. Like, I, I think that Lee said he. I I feel like Lee might have said it was in London that he saw him too. And it's yeah, usually so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, thread among uh, these creators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a fun one. Um, John has you know like it, that's one of the things I love so much about Constantine is that it it has its own mythology um, that exists outside the, the comic itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I'd noticed just there that you said Constantine. Yeah. That's a funny thing because there's the difference in pronunciation. Neil Gaiman will tell you it's Constantine. I believe Alan Moore will tell you it's Constantine. Yeah. But I've always it said Constantine. Constantine. My justification is that I also don't say aluminium. Oh well, oh. it's this is this isn't just you know uh, you know hoity-toity Brits you know telling people <laughs> how, the, the correct way to pronounce his name. It's it's canon. It's in the books. I think it was in Garth Ennis's run, and he basically put a button on it and. Somebody calls him Constantine. I think I think it's even written out in the dialogue where somebody says Constantine and it's spelt um, T E E N, yeah. and John says it's Constantine, like constant wine or something like that. <laughs> uh, call, calling us right out. Well, yeah. I, I'm Canadian. You're lucky. Uh, you're lucky. I don't throw an A in the middle of it. There. That was my. Uh, that that was that was what the first time I ever met Cy in person or we spoke at least um that's what you know basically cemented my my hellblazer cred was the first time i ever said it in front of him i said constantine he was like you say that right <laughs> <Got it. laughs> rare for an american i've never met who says yeah. his name right 
So this project overall, uh, Dead in America. Mm -hmm. So back at, it was Fan Expo in Toronto two years ago when your issue of Nightmare Country, where you had uh, recreated the serial convention from Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Two years? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe strictly speaking, it's like a year and a half or something. Yeah, But, uh, at that point, we were talking about your issue coming out, and at that point, you had mentioned that uh, you guys were trying to get uh, another Hellblazer book uh, greenlit, and you know, then jump to now, we're finally getting it. Uh, was it was it in doubt, or did you guys know for a while that yeah, that this is said, it's going to go through? Um, I mean, you know. Until something happens, there's always some doubt, but it was always the intention, you know, ever since, you know, and we like to say that the first series was never canceled. It just wasn't re-upped. Like we didn't get our second 12 issue arc Um, because 12 issues was all we were ever like guaranteed to begin with. Um, So we, we like to, you know, Make that very clear. We weren't actually canceled. <laughs> and I like it this way, the way things are coming out in, and particularly for the Sandman universe, because you know James yeah. has Nightmare Country is still going, but it's now in the Glass House, which started again at another number one. So it's kind of fitting for that Sandman universe stuff for things to come out in blocks. Yeah, and it's it's much more, even for me, I I think that especially for like more mature titles, the the days of long ongoing series just don't make a whole lot of sense anymore. It, yeah. It's much more consumable if there's a, a beginning, a middle and an end to a specific storyline. And you can package that as the same way that you would an OGN or a novel for that matter. Um, and it's, it makes it much easier to onboard as far as I'm concerned. I think it makes it much more easy to onboard new readers, um, because, you know, there's always that question is like, well, where do I start? Where do I start? It's like, we'll just pick up, you know, uh, marks of woe or whatever. And, you know, like just, you can do the first two, the first two trades and you're good to go. And even with this one, people have been asking me, like, do I need to read that stuff before? And I'm like, well, I mean, sure it would be helpful, but we do give a little bit of a recap, you know, at the very beginning of issue one and what happened in the first arc really has, there's only, only the inciting incident is directly connected to that, our original run. So beyond that, which is explained, you actually don't need to read the first two trades though i will say please go read them and buy them i get royalties <laughs> out of that. yeah but, it, uh, <laughs> it, def- it definitely helps uh, to have the context and yeah, yeah, yeah as far as doing things in uh in smaller blocks like that as someone who works in a comic shop uh, i could uh, maybe two weeks ago uh i sold a packaged set of all of the first issues of, oh, nice. of the uh, the first set of it to someone who was planning to to start reading this one when it came on and wanted to catch up and it's just so much easier than oh yeah i want to start reading batman okay well you can jump right on now at issue 137 or yeah, yeah. 
I always thought, I mean, this is completely off the subject, and you'll have to remind me what the original question was because I think we got off track. But I've always thought, you know, what, I would love to walk into a comic shop and see an area of the shop where you have, you know, like you have your wall of trades, you know, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, several bookcases dedicated and it's called essentials. And in you have new readers come into the shop and they're like, well, where do I start? What do I do? And then the person working there is like, oh, well, come with me. These are the essentials. You can pick anything off of this shelf and you're good to go. Like, these are the essential Batmans. These are the essential X-Men. These are the essential, you know, you got Saga of Swamp Thing. You've got, like, just, like, if you can start anywhere, you can pick anything off of this shelf and it will get you where, it'll it'll get you where you want to go. It'll introduce you to the characters. It's seminal stories. But it's always mixed together. And you go into most comic shops and new readers are just lost. It's overwhelming. So I tell this to every retailer I ever meet. You yeah. need an essentials section. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's definitely a, a handy way of helping people get on. And I saw a thing. I forget what shop it was. I saw a shop recently promoting a sale on specifically on trade paperbacks uh-huh. where any... Any volume one that they picked up, then they could get volume two. Volume two would be 20% off. Volume three would be 30% off and volume four, 40% off, so on and so on. They're kind of, they're kind of doing a reverse of what image does where volume one is sold for 10 bucks and then volume two jumps up to 20 to, to get you into it. Yeah, yeah, the off, yeah, yeah. kind of uh, giving people uh, a reason because what their explanation started off with was, you know, so many people they they read the first volume of something and they talk about how much they loved it, but then they haven't read two through eight. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, urging people to to continue along. So anyway, yeah, I I think we got off track. I can't remember what the original question was that you had asked. I I I don't either, so don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh. So one of the interesting things, this is a great time for anything coming now. Obviously, Sandman is right in this. So it's a great time for anything Sandman universe, but definitely having Sandman in. We've got, like I said, James doing uh, his stuff with Corinthian. Uh, mm-hmm. Pornsack just did his Dead Boy Detectives. We've got Sandman on Netflix. We've got Dead Boy Detectives coming on Netflix. How great would it be to get... Uh, uh, a a Constantine series on net, on Netflix like within that same universe. I I mean uh, this is this is the, uh, the 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 big the big other dream that that someone takes notice of what Sai and I have done and says we should translate this to the big screen or the small screen. Yeah, uh, honestly, I would prefer the small screen. Just it's you get well, to tell yeah, much longer I, yeah. stories there. Absolutely. Like it, it need, would need to be a series um, uh, in order to, to tell it properly. Yeah. Uh, I do think that I do think that John does deserve his own film, though, and a film that is like actually John and, you know, not, yeah. I mean, you know, all yeah. love Keanu Reeves, but but it's it, it's not that's not John Constantine. It's a, it's yeah, a exactly. guy named John Constantine. Um, but it's really, it, it's a different person. 
Yeah. yeah, he he doesn't yeah. look like him. He doesn't sound like him. And yeah, that's what I was just about to get to myself. Like, no ill will toward my countrymen. You know, I like Keanu and he can basically be in anything he wants. Yeah. But he doesn't look like the man. He doesn't sound like the man. It's for the better that he doesn't. I, I don't know if you've heard him do accents before, but it's it's not his thing. So yeah, it's for the yeah, best that, that he just sounds like him. I, you know, I watch uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula every year, so I'm quite yeah. acquainted with his uh, <laughs> his accent work. <laughs> well, there was there was a movie he did. I think it was late '80s, uh, a hockey movie, where he played a French Canadian guy. And oh, oh yeah. man, his French can- he's Canadian, and his French Canadian accent was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. But yeah, funny. I would I would love to see you know. Maybe this is asking too much, but I would love to see Matt Ryan back. Yeah, I like Matt Ryan a lot. Um, you know, but just the you can you know that the way that Hollywood works, anything that would connect it directly into the Sandman universe, Matt unfortunately wouldn't wouldn't get the role. I, I, I I'm not gonna say he absolutely wouldn't, but I, I would say that it would be a big uphill climb to make that happen because I mean, one of the things that they were very um, conscientious about with Sandman was completely disconnecting it from the WB, um, you know, Lucifer series, Constantine series, Legends of Tomorrow, all of that stuff. Because, I mean, technically, you know, Lucifer is Lucifer first appeared in uh, Sandman. Um, if I'm not mistaken. So that character is from Sandman, but it is absolutely not. And Neil Gaiman has said that is, that character is a completely different character from the character in Sandman. And that's why in the Sandman series on Netflix, Lucifer is portrayed by someone completely different. And in yeah, a way, it, completely unique from that other show. Yeah, and e- even if it was, you could even act like it was the same one but they're at two different points in their existence yeah and one has lucifer having lived on earth as a cop or something you know yeah um if they were ever to you know this is just me speculating or or thinking out loud uh if they were ever to do any kind of adaptation that involved like the work that Sinai at least two, which I think that that would probably be at the the bottom of the heap in terms of what stories they choose to tell. Uh, our John is old. I mean, he's technically in his early sixties, um, even though he looks pretty good for being a man in his early sixties. But <laughs> you know, uh, he had he had this whole gap of time because you know our John is connected is is connected directly to books of magic so everything you know that happened after books of magic which was what 1992 i think is when that came out um the john that exists after that um is is like that's all a gap in this john's life because he basically he basically started from you know our john starts 30 years into the future from books of magic. So there's that whole gap in his life that is missing that this John doesn't remember. So it did, that was a way to de-age him some 
So I guess it, technically he's probably like in his fifties or something. Um, but, but yeah, so for me, like I have other ideas of who I think would be like good, fun Johns to, per, you know, to or actors to per, portray John. Uh, I, I feel like at some point you, if something I had, been suspicious of were true i feel like you would have maybe alluded to it but uh if you remember a while back they were talking about a constantine's uh i think series and the at least the word that was out with was that they were actively seeking a person of color to play the character and what i was curious about that was were they going to do a series where it was noah Oh, I've never heard anything about this. This is complete news to me. Um, I would love to see Noah, like, because, I mean, Noah still doesn't know that John is his dad. Yeah. Um, slowly, you know, Noah is starting to come in his own through, uh, you know, Dead in America. John, as the issues go forward, he's he's becoming more and more... Um, he's teetering on the verge of revealing like who he really is and why he's so invested in this kid's life. Uh, and of course, Swamp Thing has a lot to do with that because Swamp Thing was always the character, you know, it all, it all started off with, you know, John uh, helping Swamp Thing uh, to come to a deeper understanding of, what and what he really is and what he's really capable of. And even though John was a bastard in the way that he did this, um, it really did lead Swamp Thing to his basically apotheosis because Swamp Thing is a God level character. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it, if it wasn't for John in Saga of Swamp Thing and, you know, during Crisis, uh, that would not have happened, at least not then. It would have taken much longer for him to realize what he is and what he's capable of. And after that, like uh, once that all was resolved and Swamp Thing really came into his own, that was when that dynamic shifted and Swamp Thing became the this guide almost i mean we don't you, you don't get a whole lot more you know swamp thing john interactions after saga but anytime you do swamp thing really usually has the psychological upper hand he's the one who he's, he's like this buddha figure basically yeah this point. and so that's really what swamp thing is doing in this series you know john john really has to work hard to convince swamp thing to come back and, and help in what he's trying to achieve. Um, John is not very successful at it. And it's good that he has his companions with him to help him along that way. Uh, but once he does, you know, Swamp Thing will very much become this kind of guiding light for, for John. And that was where something interesting came in. Like that, that was the part that really, it would have been enough, you know, we start off, uh, John, Nat, and Noah are on the run. John's bringing them to America in, in their bus, which you've got uh, over your shoulder there. Mm -hmm. For anyone watching the video, we see the bus back there. Uh, so, so we find that he's 
there to find Swamp Thing to, to ask for help, as John usually does. And that, that's enough for a, a great story right there. But then you throw in this wrinkle. This is a part that was really, really smart. Throwing in Dream pops up and explains. So anyone who has read even just a little bit of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, you will know the story they are citing here where Dream reveals how John kind of caused a problem. You may have lied lied years ago, and now you're going to have to help fix it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's all, that's all Psy right there. Because, you know, we knew that with the second series, we had to up the ante. And we really, in order to truly bring this into the Sandman universe fold, um, like Dream needed to make his presence known. Uh, so that was always, and Sai was all has has said this many times. We've been talking, we've been talking about this for years at this point, and so so this this seed, you know, this this entire idea was there when we were working on the first run, and I think it was even there for Sai long before that, which was. You know, John says to, to Swamp Thing, because John's the one who ends up with the bag of sand. He bought it at a flea market or a garage sale or something back in like 1984. And in 1987, Sandman shows up, Morpheus shows up, and John tells him, I never managed to get the damn thing open. But his junky girlfriend, Rachel, she did somehow because she's hopped up on dream sand dreams yeah (laughs) and i mean it's a really tragic thing because they have you know more there's nothing that morpheus can do for her i mean once yeah the sand has its way it's that's pretty much it and so she had had it for so long she had had it for so long and like she was really it, it was it was starting to pervert the real world um, you know, like the the dream, it's the the dream sands itself were starting to um, poison reality around her, and the only thing that you know John couldn't do anything for her, and the only thing Morpheus could do for her was, you know, gently put her out of her misery with a yeah. beautiful dream, and uh, you know, it's like one of another one of John's you know cardinal sins, and. But John says, like I said, John says, never got the thing open, but how did she? And Cy always said, well, he just lied to her or lied to lied to Morpheus, to him. And <laughs> and Morpheus was too discombobulated from just coming out of his 75-year imprisonment that he didn't even think, care, consider questioning that. Yeah. Uh, so this is, and for, you know, for Cy, he said this was, this is the one plot hole that he think exists in the original series. And it's always kind of, you know, bugged him a little bit. And so now we resolve that. And then, and then the, just as a, you know, cause this is all going to come. So without revealing too much, you know, and I've said this in, you know, at New York comic con, even at the panel where it was revealed, you know, the next big question was how do we logically, bring Sandman in like why is Sandman here or not Sandman sorry how do we bring Swamp Thing in why is Swamp Thing here 
uh, how does this all play in? And not only that, like, how do we justify this road trip across America? And uh, I mean, A, I, I will tell you right now, the, the reason why Swamp Thing is in this series because he's a bucket list character of mine. And I just okay. I just dropped those hints. Every time I was like, man, it'd be really great. Like, imagine like getting Alec Holland back in there. And I just, every time that there was something, I just, I just dropped those breadcrumbs and just, I, I just got it into their subconscious, I guess. Until finally it was just, it was just given, we have to have Swamp Thing. Cause it's like, if we're going to, if we're going to get this back, if we're going to get DC higher ups, to green like this there's got to be a big flourish it's got to be a reason we've got to have not only do we have to have dream in there but we got to get morpheus in and not only do we get morpheus in but we got to get swamp thing in so uh so that was when i suggested i was like well you know this is how we this is how we justify the road trip it's how we justify swamp thing it all goes right back to saga swamp thing john had that bag of sand uh he he by the time he shows up his first appearance in swamp thing uh 37 uh he he already has that bag of sand and what we don't we don't see is that he's been using it and that's that's he's been using it and he's using it in saga um, and that that'll get explained further as we go through the series. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a genius thing when when I read to that point where Dream shows up. Like you know, we we knew from the the solicitations, you know, the the pitch of the series that this was going to be John. It was going to be a Dream, and it was going to be Swamp Thing. We didn't know the whys, but when I got to that, I, that's brilliant because that definitely could have happened you're you're not changing anything from neil's books either yeah. that that yeah. absolutely he could have been lying to him and absolutely dream was on so much of a quest to to get his tools back that he wasn't thinking about oh the guy told me he couldn't get it open but he helped me locate it anyway so i'm not yeah, and it, yeah. And it changes absolutely nothing from alan moore's run on saga swan thing it just what it, what it does is it uh it suggests if not reveals why or how John knew anything that was, was happening before and how it was that he was able to lead swamp thing, um, you know, forward through that story. Um, all, all related back to crisis. So, so this is, these are echoes of crisis, uh, you know, crisis on infinite earth, because if you, if you recall, you know, crisis on infinite earth was happening, in the main DCU saga of Swamp Thing started, you know, and was building up as that was taking place. And so I don't know if it was a decree. I've never talked to Karen Berger about this, but I'd actually be really curious to find out like what was the yeah. inception, but you know, what Alan Moore was doing was basically tying Swamp Thing in to crisis because, you know, the same thing that was happening with crisis on infinite earth, was happening with the green. You had the green that was having this, like uh, the brujeria, uh, this group of, you know, esoteric, you know, sorcerers in South America were trying to destroy the green. Um, and it was all tied into crisis. And there was even that, I mean, it, there's some stuff that they had to do, which is, you know, a little, I want to say silly, but 
it, you know, it, when Swamp Thing went up to uh, the Justice League's like space station <laughs> in, in Saga, and he got to see like that's whenever you know John told him like, see, like not only are you dealing with this, but the rest of the world has their own crisis to deal with, and if we don't figure this out like now, we it's all going to come crashing. It's all going to basically you know poof out of existence, and we're we're fucked. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's, that's another thing that's like super fun and it's, it's such an honor to be able to write new stories that connect back to that, like really important DC canon. Yeah. Super influential stuff that, you know, there are still all these things coming out influenced and affected by that. And so you mentioned in the pitch there that you, you mentioned the name Alec Holland, which I thought was interesting because what I was taking from issue one. So the issue one, we see John reconnecting with both Dream of the Endless and with Swamp Thing. But the way I was reading is that one, neither was it Morpheus as Dream anymore, nor Alec Holland, because since their last meeting, uh, with John's last meeting with either of them, Daniel Hall has become Dream, and is it are are we seeing uh, Levy Kamei from Ram V's Swamp Thing? No, no, no. It is Alec Holland. This okay. is okay. Is, this is Alec Holland. The entire conceit is that you know Alec Holland basically gave up. That's why when we see him at the end of issue one, he's a golf course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His swamp has been bulldozed and filled in. And it's now, it's now a golf course, golf course. And, uh, and if you've read, you know, the original run of swamp thing, you know, that, you know, Alec Holland swamp thing never was actually Alec Holland. It was, it was this, Alec Holland was a scientist doing things. And when he died, his personality got imprinted onto the elemental that became Swamp Thing. And so Swamp Thing, you know, when it was Bernie Wrightson and Lynn Wein writing it uh, before Alec, before Alan Moore changed everything, you know, they were one and the same. But then Alan Moore comes in and slowly reveals that he's not actually Alec Holland that's just this personality that he's adopted and he believes that he is Alan Holland or Alec Holland. Um, but as far as John is concerned, he's always Alec. Um, and we'll always call him Alec, uh, you know, cause it's just like, that's who he knows him as. Yeah. And, John, and John's not the kind of person who will, I mean, John is not the kind of person who you can say, uh, uh-uh, that's that don't call me that my nickname is this, or I want to be referred to as that John will be like, nah, I know you. As Alex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm not going to do that. So, I mean, it's you know, one of the things, you know, it's another one of the flaws of John. He's a, he's a son of a bitch. Um, yeah. He's a full narcissistic, you know, C word. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you you can say it. We're we're friendly with it here, but that's uh, often the great thing about John. Like, even John has been used in some of the uh, sort of mainline books, like 
Tom Taylor used him in Deceased recently. Yeah. And the reason that, but I've, I've been curious. Yeah. So the, the, the reason that Tom did him so great in there was that it came to this situation where no one was able to handle, no one was able to fix this problem because, you know, like the, the supermans and everything like that, what they would do is they would ask the person for help that they knew they needed to help with this situation. And if that person wasn't willing to help, then they were fucked. But John is the guy who will fuck over each person he needs to, to take their help. And Mm -hmm. that's why he was the only one that could fix that situation. And that's why him being that guy is, is such an interesting character. Yeah. 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 Back to this one. I will uh, not stray too far into deceased, but if you're listening this far and you're not already having read the issue, I don't know what you were thinking, but pick it up today and and check this. It's definitely a, a story worth getting into. Uh, we should probably put a little spoiler alert before that uh, uh, revelation. Oh yeah, Swamp thing yeah, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we, we we always put spoiler announcements in with the episodes when we're doing it on release day but uh if you're watching on uh on youtube right here on on the screen right now that's the a cover for issue one by aaron himself that's me here's the jock cover and this was uh what, sean phillips cover right yeah and then there's the yeah. uh one in 25 uh ratio cover uh from Mateus. Vergara. Uh, yes, was, yes. Uh, was my my co-artist on the first series. And then uh, once you've done this, wait for I think it's February twentieth. We've got issue two coming, mm-hmm. and you can see just just from the covers, you can see how crazy things are going to get. Uh, there's a Stephen Subic uh, variant yeah. cover for issue one, and if you're new to Aaron's art, I don't know how you would be, but if you're into Sandman stuff, you should have read uh, James Tynan's Nightmare Country, particularly Aaron's issue here where they did uh, some really cool flashbacks to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the serial, you know, bas- what's basically a convention of serial killers in Neil's yes. uh, Sandman run. And you you got to recreate such an iconic scene. Yeah. Oh, where dream unmakes the uh the corinthian i loved i loved working on those pages it was i think it was just four pages but man they were monumental uh yeah, yeah su- such a cool scene uh great to see it uh re-represented before i let you uh wrap up and get out of here i wanted to ask you a couple quick things mm-hmm. uh so in in this case, you know, we can use John as an example, but if you had the ability, like, waving a, to wave a magic wand or use one of John's spells, if you could completely fix one thing about the comic industry, about your job or whatever aspect of it, what's one thing that you would fix that you would want to change? Like, okay, this needs to be like this. Oh, man. That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know if there's really anything necessarily I would fix, but there is something I would prevent. 
Okay, what's that? And that is the infiltration of AI imagery. Yeah. That's the Wholesale. next thing I wanted to bring up with you. Full, full stop into the industry. Every convention, every pub publisher uh, basically uh, uh, either signs a real pact or or just, just decides this is verboten. Yeah, really, it, it's troubling how quickly it popped up. It, not just that it exists, but yeah. this attitude of the people using it that, oh, well, I'm an artist now because I put these words into, into a program. It's like, in, <laughs> it, from my perspective, it's like calling up a pizza place, telling them what you want on your pizza and saying, I make a really great pizza. Well, I, I always say it's like a um, a patron. So you're editor at a comic book publisher or a person who is commissioning you to do a piece. They are not the artists, but they are the ones telling you what they would like to see. Yeah. And it's no fucking different. Yeah. With And I call them AI word searchers. And it is, I never use the word art. It is simply AI imagery. Mm -hmm. um, so like those are the two terms I use because there is no such thing as an AI artist. It is just a person who is searching. There's like a, I don't know if you were ever a fan of Tim and Eric. Oh, I, I'm familiar. Okay. There was a, there was an episode of Tim and Eric where they have a sketch with um, Paul Rudd. And okay. it is... It is fucking hilarious. Paul Rudd is arriving, like, he, he doesn't play himself. He's just a guy. And he evidently, like, his job, he, he arrives at his job, and his job is, like, inside this gigantic, like, empty space. And there's a little pathway. It's almost like the inside of the um, the danger room or the, not the danger room in, in X-Men, but uh, Cerberus or Cerberus or whatever that, that uh, yeah. Professor X used. And so it's got this like pathway that leads out to a station. And on that station is this like shitty little work desk and a crappy old computer. Okay. And Paul Rudd goes out. He's got his coffee. He's got a big old mug of uh, a, a thermos of coffee. And he comes in and he sits down and he's like cracks his knuckles. And he's like, okay, let's get to work. And then for the next, like the entire rest of the sketch, his entire job is just him asking the computer to show him images of himself doing silly dances. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like before, before AI was even considered at this level, like Tim and Eric have had, had anticipated this, the absurdity of what AI art is, which is narcissistic individuals asking the computer to show them uh, like grotesque uh, 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 images of false realities. And, and not only that, but, but in a way that steals from like true creatives. So, yeah, I know, like, I'm, I'm very much, you know, like, like all other comic book art, like legitimate comic book artists, or any legitimate artists in any genre. Um, 
it is it's a it's a line that shall not be crossed. You know, there was a there was a moment early on when before I realized how insidious this entire thing would become. Um, and it was like I just started to hear about what AI was, like AI imagery was. And that was the moment where I was like, there, there was just this like fleeting moment where I thought this could be a really great tool for finding reference, you know, like figuring out like, cause there's finding reference is like a, the endless like puzzle of creating art um, and how you use reference, you know, the, the ethics of, of how you use reference um, whether or not you're, you're using reference that you find through Google searches or reference that you take yourself. Like I, like all of my figures, like I shoot reference of everything. Um, and I thought like, just imagine, wouldn't it be awesome. Like anytime you have like a car chase where it ends with like wreckage, like I could ask the computer, but like, can you show me a Nissan Ultima that's been like smashed up? Cause I need to see what that looks like. Yeah. And there was a moment where I thought like, that would be awesome. But I'm at a point now where I'm like, I won't even entertain the notion because now I understand the source of where those, Im how those images are uh, cobbled together from plagiarized yeah. images. Yeah. So, you know, what, what could have been an actual tool for artists has become a, uh, a, an effort to replace. Yeah, and I, I would uh, I would commend you for using your uh, your one uh, magic trick to uh, to keep that away from the industry as much as possible. I don't want to see AI imagery in comics any more than I want to read or watch stories created by like it's it's eliminating what is really the essence of art. Like I want yeah. art, whether it's uh, visual art. Uh, you know something written you want this stuff to come from real people who have have suffered have triumphed have had losses and victories and have experiences not uh, a computer program that sucked up an artist's visual style and will spit it back out with whatever you tell it to draw yeah and and art should always be the result of a a, a struggle yeah. that the artist is engaging in um, art is not easy. It never should be easy. Um, it's one of the reasons why my style is constantly changing. I'm constantly looking for new ways to like create imagery, um, whether that's digitally or traditionally. Cause I kind of work, I work I, like a, I don't even know how to explain it. It's more like a like a broad mixed media where I, I combine digital process and traditional process in my work. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm constantly looking for new ways to do that. And it's always got to be, it's always got to be difficult. The second it's easy, you know, you've got to change and you've got to move forward. Uh, and that is exactly what AI is not. It is only about the fastest result 
for the l- smallest effort. Uh, it's it's very much skipping the. St- I'm I'm sure there are some guys doing it who have you know prior some ability as, as an actual artist, but for for most of these people jumping on it, it was a way to springboard past the the point of spending years learning how to create art and just do it by typing some words. And, and I, I despise the, the, the usage of the term democratization of art. It's not. It is the theft of culture mm-hmm. um, is what it is. Um, yeah. it, it, it's all it is. It's, it's about, it's about uh, denigrating the work that, that, that real people do and uh, trying to steal uh, thousands of years worth of human endeavor um, by small people who do not want to work for what they gain. And something was telling about the people who gravitated toward that when artists uh, in all areas started speaking up about their work being put into these programs and the people utilizing it were saying, Oh, you, you can't copyright your style. You can't be, Oh, it's, it's, you know, we're, the, these programs are interpreting it. You can't copyright that. But then how quickly they started to eat themselves when one of them felt that another AI guy was stepping on his uh, list of words that he used. Yeah, and they started yeah, talking it, about being able to copyright their lists of words. Like, whoa, it's whoa, absurd. whoa. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it, and another way to say it is it's no different than uh, doing a Google search for a um, peer-reviewed scientific paper and finding it and then claiming that you wrote it because you're the one who searched for it. Yeah. Uh, it's I mean, it's absurd. There was something I was... I kind of um, had uh, entertained this notion of, of trolling uh, uh, AI uh, image makers um, if I had all the time in the world. Because, you know, recently the uh, Copyright Office of America, the United States, said that, you know, you can't copyright um, AI imagery because it's not created by a human. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's great. That means that all of these images that are made are up for grabs for anybody who wants to use them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll just be like, start claiming that these are mine and like <laughs> putting them up on like these, you know, like Redbubble or, you know, all those little sites where you can like slap images onto like T-shirts and coffee bugs and shit yeah. like that. And just like just grabbing them and just like I'll have a whole second stream of income. But of course, again, ethically, it's like I would love to just stick it to every single one of them. But I also don't think that any money should ever be made from any of these images, no matter the reason. And anything that you do in that regard basically furthers um, the furthers the legitimacy of AI imagery in a broader public who may not think deeply about these issues. Yeah. Maybe if, uh, if the proceeds of such an endeavor are donated to, you know, 
children who can't afford their own art supplies that uh that, like you the, know want to, to learn to paint or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> but even and then they, like, i don't think that there's any justification because it's really it's like a altruistic you know outcome it's just I, I can't i can never think my way around it in a way where i find an ethical um outcome for it so it's just like yeah. fun little like uh uh you know just you know stuff that can exist inside my mind uh but uh yeah i just what, what i've come to the for me i know this is a lot of people and social media who really go after AI um, imagery. And I just decided I'm just not going to engage at all uh, and ignore it. And so far, even though like every time you look at a post uh, that has anything to do with it, there's always those people who are defending it. And it's the same rhetoric over and over again. It's very tired rhetoric. Um it's still, it, it's, we've, we've been here for a year. We're kind of at a, a stage now where I think that AI is really not going to, like the way that AI creates images, it's just, it's not really going to get any better. It's all become this homogenous looking, like ultra polished shit, you know, that's yeah. overcomplicated, overcomplicated shit. And like, and, you know, AI is starting to figure out how to like, make a hand look like a hand get the right number matter. of fingers yeah it doesn't matter how but the thing is is it doesn't matter because every image always has something in it that just doesn't make any fucking sense and it's third and it's just not getting any better at this point and it just all looks the same now it's just you know an algorithm a computer program is all funk like focusing its its mathematics towards a commonality and that commonality is uninteresting because what makes art interesting is its diversity is its unique voice um, that comes with every image created by any person and it doesn't matter you know like for me big and my biggest influences are people like Bill Sienkiewicz and Sean Phillips and uh, Kent Williams, John J. Moose, oh, yeah. you know, all of the great Vertigo artists um, from the 90s, um, John, Paul Leone, like, you know, you can see, you can see, um, you can see the experimentation, like, whenever you see experimentation in my work, um, like that, that influence comes from, you know, Dave McKean uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz and, and the like, when you see realism, that's coming from Sean Phillips and John Paul Leone and the like. So, but the thing is, is it will never look like their work because it's been filtered through my experience, my idiosync, my idiosyncratic, you know, ways of making marks that are unique to my physiology. It's AI is an algorithm that cobbles images together. It doesn't understand influence. It doesn't understand interpretation. 
all it understands is amalgamation. Like, how do I take these different images and amalgamate them into something? Um, And so it can't actually think, process information. And this is what I find so absurd about people who say they're AI artists. Like, it doesn't fucking matter what words you ask a computer to search for you the algorithm is interpreting that for you it's not you yeah and and there's a reason that none of this stuff can be copyrighted uh whether it's visual art or writing it's the same thing with uh with companies aren't going to start uh producing movies and shows at least not at this point uh based on AI scripts because none of that stuff can be copywritten. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a podcast that I listened to uh, from Craig Mazin, uh, you know, screenwriter and genius. And when everyone was worried about, oh, aren't they going to start replacing your job with with AI stuff? And he's like, no, no, that's not going to be a problem. No, no, not going to. I'm not worried. No, I'm not worried. And then he revealed why. Well, they can't. He started talking about how like. HBO and Disney and stuff, they're as worried about this technology as anyone else is because their concern now becomes, well, what if someone gives us something? You know, what if we're given a script that we don't know was, you know, someone used AI on it and then we we get into a, a copyright problem later? Yeah, that's that's the insidious thing, because when it comes to the written word, it's probably much more difficult to identify um, yeah. there's a lot of shitty writers out there and all AI written, uh, content is garbage. So, um, it could probably become very difficult to discern if a screenplay has been written by just a bad screenwriter or a computer program. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, it, it if anything, like this would be my other wish that what AI actually does, especially for the written word is elevate what uh, makes it through. Because, you know, remember like a few years ago, it was like the golden era of television and streaming. Like everything that Netflix put out was fucking gold. You know, like everything everybody was doing was just gold. It was all like, yeah. you got it. Like every time a new series came out, it was like, you have to watch it. It's the next best thing. And then eventually that passed. And now we're kind of back into this, era now where it's like who knows like it's a crapshoot whether or not anything's going to be good or not and there's a lot of shit out there and this is a good I'll, I'll give you a little behind the scenes about about infidel it's an anecdote that Pornsack told me uh so without naming names you can obviously go look it up probably to find out who wrote who 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 is hired to write the the first screenplay for the Infidel film. And of course it, and this is all uh, Pornsack and I have gotten the rights back it all reverted uh, pandemic you know fuck that all up. Um and uh <laughs> well pandemic and also shows like uh, Bridgerton um it's kind of like post racial uh, uh uh TV landscape where uh, uh production companies started to get skittish about uh, uh, about doing work that really hits hard um, yeah. with topics. 
So um, everybody wanted like these kind of kumbaya sessions, which is very much what Bridgerton is about, about like ignoring that racism is a thing. Um, And uh, so, uh, but at any rate, this this was before that, um, obviously. Um, Poor Zach, he said that he was at a party or something uh, in LA and ran into a friend of his who had run into one of the screenwriters uh, and he said that he had talked to him about it and was like, Oh, you're the ones writing you and uh, your partner are the ones writing the, the screen adaption for infidel. He's like, I I'm good friends with porn sag is it's an amazing series and started talking to him about it. He's like, what do you, what, what do you think about it? And you, and the screenwriter told him, well, I don't know. I only read the first issue. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> that sounds about right, doesn't well, it? Well, <laughs> that answers everything. I mean, that's, that answers the entire fucking thing. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, art is one thing. But I, I have to tell you, there is a compelling argument to be made by cynics who would say... Who fucking cares? Nobody seems to give a shit anyway. So if anything, what I hope is that the rise of AI, especially in the writing side of things, makes people start to fucking care again about what it is they're putting on paper. Um, People need to start thinking more deeply about the culture they create and what culture is worth creating and how much you give to that. And you should give your all. I mean, if you're making, if you're making the kind of money that screenwriters in Hollywood make nowadays, they should fucking care um, deeply about what it is they're writing. So I don't know. I, you know, the older I get, the more cynical I become about, you know, the future of everything but <laughs> well you, you kind of have to that there's it's uh to an extent it's uh it's adapting to uh the changing world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah i would uh i've always felt this way that i would much rather whether it's uh, a, a comic uh, a novel a movie a show i would much rather take in any of that media that is created by someone who created that thing because it was what they wanted to create. Like they were fighting to be able to make that thing rather than someone who created that thing because, Oh, they offered me this, this job. So I took it. I mean, and I will say that, you know, as cynical as I am, I will always take a narcissistic piece of shit um, that was crapped out by someone who didn't give a, uh, who, who didn't care about what they were doing. As long as it came from the mind of a human being, I will yeah. take that every goddamn day of the week over anything written by an algorithm. Like mm-hmm. I do not care. Like anything, like let there be shit. Um, as long <laughs> as that shit has been created by us and yeah. not, and not the repl- not a, a replacement that is, you know, that exists. You know, like I'm a big, uh, I'm a big fan of HP Lovecraft. Um, in his stories, there's this one story of his is called the mound. I think um, it was, and it, it in it, uh, 
it, it outlines this society that lives, I think, beneath the world and, um, and this society has become utterly complacent because uh, uh, this other, everything's been taken care of for them. And so all they, all they have to do all day is just like lie around and, you know, nothing. It's, it's a lot like, uh, there's, it's a common, it's a common uh, storyline in Star Trek, you know, like the original series, they were constantly running into these societies where a computer had taken over and uh, over all of the, the functions for society. And then the rest of the, like the population itself was, was collapsing because they didn't know how to fix things. They didn't know how to like do anything. And, uh, and it's like, well, this is the, like, this is what people don't realize is, I mean, when you start to allow um, programs, algorithms, computers to take over what is quintessentially human, which is the creative spark, that's when, like, we really have to worry it's one thing like, you know, all through the eighties and the nineties, you know, people worried about robots taking your jobs. And those were like physical robots doing manual labor, building cars, you know, whatever in factories. And it's like, that's one thing, but you know, what we've learned is that there was always something else that someone could do. I mean, it's a complex subject and obviously, you know, labor is not what it was, you know, 20 years ago, but, uh, it didn't, it didn't undermine the human spirit in general. Like there was always that thing that we could hold on to. And I remember for so long, it was, that was the refrain as the rise of the robots came, you know, for labor. Well, at least we can all rest assured that there are certain things that robots will never be able to do. And amongst those is create art. And now they're trying to do that. And they're trying to tell us that they're creating art. But and it, it's time for new education about what art is, about like, you know, how we engage with art, um, what it means, all of that. Uh, so... Yeah, and stop uh, eliminating the, the learning process and all of the the pain that goes into it uh, enough of the oh, i want to be able to create a piece of art and, and i want to be able to create it today yeah yeah it it has been my my dearest wish for 5 minutes and now i want to be able to do it yeah yeah <laughs> well and again it's it, it's that that paul rudd i want to i want to see i want it's it's a uh, it's like everybody wants to be uh, this king who can say, I demand to see this. Jester, do this for me. I now want to see this. I want to see a monkey uh, kissing an elephant, dancing a jig on the moon. Show me it. <laughs> I just had to go and look up an image. Uh, I assume that this... That's it. That's absolutely yeah. it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go watch this after. Still and and just, just that it's Paul, just that it's Paul Rudd had me sold. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, it's it's like people just 
wanting to play God, I guess, and like, show me this, show me these images, show me this thing. Um, and it's funny because Photoshop has been trying to incorporate this shit into its program, and it is it is just the worst. I played around with it just for shits and giggles to see what it actually does. And it's, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It totally fucks up your images and and the stuff that it generates. Like the idea is that you, you have an image, like say you have a photograph of a coastline. You're like, I would like to see a lighthouse on that bluff. And then it's supposed to like be able to put that into the image. Yeah. And uh, so I played with it just to see like, well, if I can use this for like reference purposes, like I was saying earlier. And the shit that it comes up with, like, it does nothing looks like anything. It, you know, like, there was a scene in, in issue one of, uh, well, there's the cop that shows up in issue one of Hellblazer. And I was yeah. like, oh, I wonder if I could, like, get some reference, you know, because I have the reference of her, you know, in a costume that I had cobbled together. And I was like, it'd kind of be nice to be able to put a police belt around her. And I have reference of that now. And so I played around with it. And the shit that it cobbled onto her waist was the most absurd bullshit. Like, it just, it was like, what is that? And I was like, delete, delete. Don't use this. Like, just stop. <laughs> at, at least you can say you gave it its fair shot and, and found that yeah. it was crap. Well, and then again, you know, like, at, even as I was doing it, I come back to that ethical question of, like, this this just isn't something that I should be engaging in. I, I should not be. And another reason why I backed up, I was like, I want to see if the see what this is capable of. But even then, I realized, like, this is not something to be to be muddled with. It's a Pandora's box and people are opening it incrementally and unlike a true Pandora's box, I think there's, it's just like, it's just like NFTs. You know, there was that moment where everybody thought like, Oh fuck, like what, what are we, what's happening? And the entire thing collapsed. Uh, everybody thought it was the next great thing. And I just have a feeling that ultimately AI, it's not going away and it's going to exist in very specific forms. But I think the way that people are trying to force it upon society is not going to be the way that it ultimately exists. And, and you can often tell from the way a new thing like NFTs were being uh kind of thrown at you like you know we were getting emails daily from these different nft companies like oh do you want to partner on this thing you know make this or be a sponsor of this nft and i laughed heartily when i saw that article so, you know sometime late last year that you know the the headline was just something like the vast majority of nfts are now worthless well big surprise <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a it, it pops up on my Instagram feed every once in a while, but there's a guy who lampoons this stuff, and it's he does an antiques roadshow version of NFTs, <laughs> and uh, and he you know he plays both characters, you know like he's the he's the guy in the Poindexter suit, and then the other guy who shows up who's like a tech bro dude, and then he shows off an actual NFT. 
and then talks about like and asks him like, well, how much did you spend on this? It's like, well, me and my friends got together and we heard about this is going to be the next big thing. So, you know, we dropped half a million dollars on it. And uh, and then I'll tell you, well, this was uh, this was actually created by a pioneering NFT artist named uh, Fart Knuckle. And because uh, they always have these fucking ridiculous, like just stupid ass like names. And he's like, and uh, he was actually like really popular for a while. Um, was a, considered a pioneer. This is his. This is his uh, Abra- Abraham Lincoln uh, series of monkeys. This one's actually called Abraham Lincoln. And uh, uh, you'll be. Ha- I think you're going to be happy to know uh, w- w- what it's worth. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, this one's actually worth two cents. <laughs> uh... Yeah. And it's like what they're all worth. They're worth nothing. They're worth absolutely yeah. nothing. As they it, should be. Yeah. It, it's because it's really just on your laundering, phone. laundering money, uh, yeah. which failed um, as a way of laundering money because the people who actually need the criminals trying to launder money um, unloaded all of that. And then uh, those ended up in the portfolio of some dipshit. Uh, who doesn't understand the world of criminality. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. So, but, uh, Oh man, how how we've diverged. (laughs) Yeah. That, that was fun though. But, uh, yeah, we kept you way longer here than, uh, than we had originally discussed, but, uh, Back yeah, up was on that, topic. I, was, I was just waiting for the wife to to call. She had to work today, so okay. I make sure that I was I was done before she got home. But um, so yeah, I've, I've been good. <laughs> it's been fun. Yes. It's been a while so, since yeah, I've you, you, I always like doing this. It's fun talking, getting out of my uh, my my hibernation, my my hermitage. <laughs> well, we we appreciate uh, Andy. Happy to give you uh, the avenue to do it, but. Hillblazer Dead in America issue one. As of the time you're hearing this, it is in stores right now. And February 20th, uh, issue two, it, you see right here. Uh, I did get to read issue one uh, beginning of December, and it was even more than I thought it would be. So uh, definitely go check it out if you haven't already, even though we've already spoiled it for you. It's you're still going to want to read it and the rest of the series. Now, one thing in the solicitations from the distributor, at issue two, it's listed as an eight issue. At issue three, it's listed as a nine issue. Is, yep. is it nine, is nine now, the so, now? Yeah, that was a, that was a thing. Uh, uh, you know, it's one of those little sneaky things we do to give ourselves a little bit more time. <laughs> so issue five, issue five is a special issue. It's not a, it's not a fill-in issue. It is a, a, um, it is going to be a little guest issue. Um, uh, and that's where um, I'm, uh, there's going to be three, three little stories. Cause there's a, there's a, an area of America that we have to so basically New Mexico, where I'm from, we have to, we have to jump over it. And uh, uh, we go basically from Texas to where we are trying to get to after Texas. But we really wanted to tell some stories in between there, and especially a couple stories in New Mexico. And uh, so we've got this issue. Uh, Sai is writing two of those. I'm writing one. This is my, this is my, 
true solo writing debut. I did co-write West of Sundown with Tim Seeley. Um, like Tim did the lion's share of that. I was more a plot guy and an editing guy on that on that series. But this one is all me. And uh, uh, but it's going to be three different artists um, drawing these three different stories with uh, with some bookends by myself. So uh, so, yeah, so that we're doing that. And then uh, so, yeah, so there's it really there's no uh, interruption follows the same storyline um, and just keeps going. Um, so we just it was a it was a pleasant surprise that we got to add one more issue to the series. So we get to see. uh Constantine roll through uh, New Mexico and uh, maybe bump into Heisenberg or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll assume that's what it's going to be. He definitely goes through Albuquerque um, and he's driving down the same road that uh, if you recall the uh, episode where uh, Walter White is going to the uh, hospital for one of his cancer treatments yeah. and he talks about like driving down Central and he gets that green. He was like, I got that green light, every green light. And the I just wanted one red light so I could have just a few more moments, you know, before I got there. Uh, that yeah, that's the same road that uh, that that John and the crew will be driving down. Though I, I don't make any breaking bad. I, I don't make any breaking bad uh, yeah. references. <laughs> it's pro- probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to see that one, but I also can't wait for issue two. February 20th is issue two. Uh, John Constantine, Hellblazer, or John Constantine, Hellblazer, Dead in America, issue one out now, issue two, February 20th. Uh, anything else you want to say, Aaron? Uh, just thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, get to shop and buy as, as many copies. Give them to your grandma and your niece and your baby and yourself and keep a few, you know, for just future purposes, whatever. <laughs> Grandmother, grandmothers love John is what I've always heard. <laughs> but thank you, Aaron. Thank you everyone for listening. That was Aaron Campbell. This was Bat Force Radio. Have a good night. <laughs>